Good morning. Good to see you. Thank you for being here with us this morning. We are in Acts chapter 5 today, and we're actually going to back up just a smidge and start in verse 32 of chapter 4, and then we're going to like keep going a little bit into verse 7 of chapter 6, but chapter 5 is the main thing in the middle of all that, and hopefully by the time we get done, you'll see why I felt like we should start just a little bit into 4 and get into 6 a little bit. Uh, so if you want to be turning uh, to 432 in your Bibles or on your devices or um, also in your worship guide, your bulletin there in the notes, you have the text as well if you'd like to look at it there. Um, in just a second, I'm going to pray for us and ask that God would teach us by His Spirit right now as only He can, that this would not just be a time of human activity or human study or uh, even human discussion, but that the Holy Spirit would be the master teacher and that he would do a spiritual work in our hearts. And then we're going to read this chapter, and I'm going to ask you to be listening first and foremost for what does this teach us about God? Like What do we see about who God is and how he works, about his nature, his character, uh, Father, Son, and Spirit? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, what you see there. And we'll talk through that some, and I've got a few thoughts that uh, just as I've prayed through this chapter this week that I feel like God's really put on my heart and that I'd like to cover this morning. But before we do all that, I wanted to remind you of two things uh, that we've seen in the past probably six or eight weeks together. You know, we spent a couple of weeks in Matthew 16 and 18, right before we jumped into the book of Acts. And Jesus made a promise in Matthew 16. This is why he's still on earth before he's gone back up into heaven. And that promise was this. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So Jesus makes that promise while he's still on earth, and then right before he goes up into heaven, he makes a second promise. Like, he makes this promise, and the way he fulfills the promise is by then making a promise of, here's how I'm going to do it. And he tells the disciples in Acts chapter 1, the first chapter of this book that we're studying right now, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses And then he starts with where they are right then, in Jerusalem and all Judea, so branching out from just the city of Jerusalem, and Samaria, which is the next region, and to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus had made this promise, I'm going to build my church, and even the gates of hell will not be able to stop it. And then he comes and he makes a second promise of here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to give power to you, to my people, to my disciples, to my followers. Here's how I'll build my church. I will give you power, and specifically I'll give you power by sending my Holy Spirit, giving my Holy Spirit to live in you, and the power that he gives you will enable you to be my witnesses, to declare what you've seen. My life, my death, my resurrection. And it's through that, through the Holy Spirit-given power that allows us to declare the truth about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection that Jesus builds his church. And the gates of hell can't stop that. And I just want us to have those two promises in mind. Kind of like this is what 
This sets up everything that we see in the book of Acts and especially everything that we see today, that Jesus has promised this. He said this is what he's doing, and I want us to see him doing it today as we read this section. So that's why I wanted to start there. Just keep that in mind as I read here in just a second. What does this teach us about God? Uh, Will you pray with me right now as we get started? Father, thank you for this time right now. Thank you for the truth of your word that you have spoken and revealed yourself and made yourself known. Thank you for the promises of Jesus that he has promised to do his work through his people to build his church. Help us to see the hope and the glory and the power of those promises and help us to live in the truth of them and to believe them. And so right now, Father, please teach us from your word, by your spirit, as only you can. Open us up to the truth of your word and work in our hearts and open up the truth of your word to us so that it penetrates us and and that you do build your church and you do the work that we desperately need you to do and that we trust you to do. We trust you because of Jesus, because of his life, death, and resurrection. And so it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to start in Acts 4, 32 you'd like to read along with me. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived, contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, "'Tell me whether you sold the land for so much.'" And she said, yes, for so much. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. 
And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Sorry, I messed up my... Lost something there. Charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that's the Greeks, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, 
It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith." Now, I know that was three separate stories, so that was a lot to listen to and think about, but hopefully there's a reason. For now, anything from those three, what stands out to you about God, truths about who God is? God's grace compels his people. Did you say to live? To live generously. You know, right here where we've got this, now the full number, and we've talked about this the past couple of weeks, that by now this is probably 20,000 people by the time we get to chapter 4 because we know that it's at least 5,000 men. Um, so 20,000 believers who the grace of God has impacted their hearts so much and united them in Jesus as the church, as the family of God, that you know, they're of one heart and soul. They're not calling anything their own. As the apostles are testifying about the resurrection of Jesus, the result is this great grace that's being poured out on them, that the resurrection of Jesus has brought great grace to the church, and therefore... They're selling their lands, their houses. They're bringing the whole thing, laying it at the apostles' feet and saying, if anybody has need, here. And you, know, you think about what the grace of Jesus is, is that he comes and gives himself, his life, his position and glory in heaven, lays down his life, pours out his blood to save us. That he gives himself to us and for us for our sake. And when that impacts you, when he comes to live in you and he's changing you, what we're seeing here is the result is that you start to look like that. You start to live like that. That the same grace and giving of Jesus that has rescued you becomes the grace and giving of Jesus living through you towards others. So they're saying, hey, Jesus didn't hold back what was his own for himself. He poured it out for me. And so I'm not going to hold back what's my own for myself. I'm going to pour it out for his people for his church, for his purposes. And so God's grace, when it's really impacting our hearts and softening our hearts, compels us to give generously the way that God gives generously. What else stands out to you? Hmm. We will never fool God or God won't be tricked. 
got Ananias and Sapphira sell this piece of land. They see Barnabas and these other people who are selling the land, bringing it and giving it all to the apostles. And I'm sure there's celebration in the church and people are praising them and thanking them for their generosity, for what they're doing. And it seems like what's probably going on is Ananias and Sapphira are saying, hey, I want some of that recognition. I want people to praise me. To think, I, I want, I, they look good when they do that. I want to look good too. So they sell a piece of land, but then they say, but I don't really want to give all this. So we're not going to tell anybody what we sold it for. You know, we, we sold it for $100,000, but we're going to come and we're going to give $50,000 to the church and we're going to keep the other fifty. which Peter says, hey, that would have been fine. It was your land. You could do whatever you wanted. Even after you sold it, you could decide. If you only wanted to give 50, that's fine. But come and say, I'm only giving 50. But what they do is they pretend they're giving the whole thing. They hide what they really got from it. And God's not deceived. God knows. No one else knows. No one else can see, but God can see. And Peter says, you're trying to lie to the Holy Spirit. How foolish is this? So yeah, we won't fool God. God won't be tricked. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. What else? God wants our whole hearts. God knows the motives. Of our hearts. You know, Ananias and Sapphira do something that on the outside looks really, really good. They they give enough money that it would seem like that could be the whole amount of a piece of property, right? That has to be a fairly big sum. It's not like they're coming in with 10 bucks and be like, hey, I sold my, my back 40 and here's the 10 bucks for it. Like, it's enough that people would think that this is real. Like, they're trying to trick people. They're trying to make it look believable. So on the outside, this looks generous. This looks good. It looks like the type of thing that you want religious people doing. And that's not what it's about for God at all. He doesn't just want their external behavior. He doesn't just want their money. He wants their hearts, and he wants their whole hearts. Like, he wants them to give to him because they love him, because they know that he's worth it, because they trust him, because they believe the gospel is worth it, and the mission of the church is worth it, because the love and grace of God is compelling their hearts to show love and grace and generosity to other people in this way. And so God knows what's really going on in their hearts. They don't hide it from him for a single second. None of their religious behavior and none of the external stuff that we see that can trick us, none of it tricks God. He knows what's going on in their hearts, and he wants all of their hearts. He doesn't want obedience separate from their hearts. He wants obedience that grows out of their hearts. What else stands out to you? God can work through anybody. Which section made you think of that here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we see this often. You know, it, just in the past couple of weeks, we looked at these sermons that Peter preaches, and he's like, hey, Herod, Pilate, you know, Jewish political leader, Roman political leader, like they conspired together along with all the Jewish religious leaders to have Jesus crucified, and this was God's plan. Like this, God intended this to rescue his people, that God was using them 
working through them, even when they had no intention of being part of what God was doing. God was still working through them. And then here today, you've got one of the, the religious leaders who's in this you know, Jewish supreme court. It's sort of what it's like that Peter and the apostles are appearing before here. And he says, hey, if we oppose them and it's the work of God, we're going to be fighting against God. If it's not the work of God, then it's going to die on its own anyway. Like, if God doesn't make this happen, it won't happen. It's some really great truth that he speaks here toward the end of chapter 5. And yet, at this point in time, as far as we can tell, he's not a follower of Jesus. He does not believe that this really is the work of God, and yet God still speaks truth through him. And we're seeing, again, just the, the sovereignty of God, that he is in control. That these promises that Jesus has made, he is working them out, and nobody can stop him. What else stands out to you? God can do mighty healings and rescues. We keep seeing this over and over and over in these first chapters of Acts, that, that God has sent what is a new message. You know, they had the, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and that was their Bible. And now Jesus has come saying, hey, I'm the full revelation of God. I am the Son of God, the Word of God himself. And the apostles are saying, this is how Jesus fulfills all that. And they're speaking with authority from Jesus and from God. And, and God gives this power to confirm, this is true. They really do have my authority. These really are my people building my church. And we see that the, the supernatural acts are always in conjunction with declaring truth about Jesus confirming that this truth really is about Jesus. And I know sometimes we have these questions today, does God still do this today? And I don't want to dive into it for like 30 minutes this morning, but my answer would be yes, and also my answer would be yes in the same circumstances. Like yes to make himself known. Yes to confirm the truth about him. A lot of times it seems that in areas that are saturated with the gospel where we've had it for a long time, you don't see this as much. And a lot of times in areas where the gospel's penetrating for the first time, frontier missions where missionaries are reaching unreached groups who've never heard the name of Jesus, you tend to see this more. And that fits with what we see in the Bible. Now, I don't think that that's just a, we lay that down and say that's the only way it happens. Like, we can pray for this, we can ask for this, we know that God does do this, but it does seem that the general pattern in the New Testament is that God does this in connection with making himself known in new places where people have not heard this truth before, confirming that this is the truth about him. But we see God doing mighty healings, rescuing people in supernatural ways, that God is not limited to what we would call the natural order of stuff in this world because he is a supernatural spiritual God who is above and beyond. He works through natural stuff and he works outside of natural stuff. What else? One more? Anything really burning that you want to say? Right. We'll, we'll use that as our transition right now. That's good. So what he persuades them to do is don't kill them. <laughs> And so they're like, okay, we won't kill them, but we still want to shut them up. 
I mean, it's like we don't want them to talk about Jesus anymore. We cannot stand the fact that we killed this guy and we thought we were done with him. And now here they are still talking about him and saying that he's come back to life. And now more people believe in him after we killed him than they did before we killed him. And just notice, like this is one of the best arguments for Christianity um, in the whole world. Starting here in chapter 5, verse 36, we'll just walk through it real quick. Gamaliel points out, hey, there was somebody named Thutis who rose up a while back and, and started uh, you know, a movement. And about 400 people joined him. He died. When he died, what happened to his movement? It ended, right? You kill the leader and everybody else disperses and it's over. Then there was another guy named Judas the Galilean. He rose up. He had some people, we don't get a number here, but some people who followed him. He also died. What happened to his movement? All who followed him were scattered. So we know 400. We don't know the other number. We know when the book of Acts starts, if you go back and read chapter 1, there's 120 people following Jesus. 120 people gathered together. So Thutis comes, 400 people. Thutis dies, it's over. Judas comes, some people follow him. Judas dies, it's over. Jesus comes, he's got 120 followers. Jesus dies, what happens? What's the number now? 20,000? Something's different. <laughs> What's different? Like, why, why does the leader dies, the people scatter, the leader dies, the people scatter, the leader dies, 120 grows to 20,000? Why? You know the answer, why? The Holy Spirit, but what happened before that? Why the Holy Spirit came? Jesus died, but Jesus didn't stay dead right? These guys die, they stay dead, so their movement dies with them. Jesus dies, but he comes back to life, and his movement grows with a whole new life. Like, not just natural human movement now, resurrection power of God empowering this movement. And yes, when, he, when he's resurrected, it demonstrates that he is the Son of God, and he ascends to the right hand of the Father and sends the Holy Spirit, and now the Holy Spirit is providing the growth. But all that is contained in the fact that Jesus is alive, that Jesus is resurrected. Something different is happening with this movement around Jesus than whatever happens naturally. And so that's why they can't get them to be quiet. They, they can't get them to stop. They cannot get rid of Jesus no matter how hard they try. So they beat them to try to get them to shut up. But the deal is they know now. The apostles know that Jesus was telling the truth and that Jesus is who he says he is and that Jesus is alive and that Jesus' kingdom goes beyond this world. Like Their hope isn't just in this world anymore. And so now when you beat people who believe in all that, <laughs> they beat them and charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And I love the accusation earlier, but like we told you not to talk about him already and now you've filled Jerusalem with his name. <laughs> like you've done the, Instead of you getting quiet when we threatened you, you got louder. Because the Holy Spirit came upon them and gave them boldness. And so now we beat you. We're going, we're, you know, first time we just threatened you. That didn't work. Now we're going to beat you and tell you, stop talking about Jesus. But people like this, who their hope isn't in this world anymore, their joy isn't in this world, they know that there's something more and something beyond, and that Jesus is king, not of just this world, but king of the heavenly realms and that he rules over everything, and that he's promised everything. You beat them in this world... <laughs> 
and they rejoice that they get to suffer for the name of Jesus, that Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth more than everything in this world. Jesus is worth more than comfort and safety and convenience in this world. Jesus is worth more than acceptance and approval by the religious leaders. Jesus is worth more, and they will rejoice about the fact that they're associated with Jesus. And so they can't silence them. And that does tie into why I wanted us to read. I know we read a long chunk today, and I know we read three different stories. But remember these promises we started out with? Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And nothing, not even the gates of Hades can stop it. I'm going to give you power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses. The way that I'll build my church, by giving you power, by giving you my spirit, so that you talk about me. Jesus builds his church by making his people able to talk about him by the power of his spirit. So he's made those promises. Now look at the gates of Hades. Like Look at the pictures of opposition we get in the three stories we saw today. The one we're talking about right now. And I think this is the one we think about most often, right? persecution, and I'm going to put in parentheses over here, from the outside, like people outside the church, people who aren't believing in Jesus, are persecuting the apostles and trying to get them to stop talking about Jesus. We're going to arrest you. We're going to put you in prison. We're going to threaten you. We're going to beat you. And just so you know, we're one chapter away from we're going to kill you. Like the first death in the early church is coming up at the end of chapter, we're, we're in the middle six, at the end of seven, they stoned Stephen. So, you know, we, we arrested you, that didn't stop you. We threatened you, that didn't stop you. We beat you, that didn't stop you. So next we're going to kill you. We're not there yet, but we're seeing persecution and increasing persecution from the outside to try to stop the church. And here's my question for you this morning. Does it work? No. Like every time they persecute the church, the church shouts louder about Jesus. And this is Jesus saying, I will build my church and you can't stop it. When I give you my Holy Spirit, my power that I give to you will be stronger than any forces that you will face, any forces in this world, any forces of evil from the spiritual realms. I will build my church, and the persecution from the outside will not stop it. Now, I know that's not something that, that we face a lot at this moment in this country, not in the way that we're seeing right here. Um, but it is a common thing even today still around the world. We, in some ways, we're the exception and not the rule where we live. I've gotten to go to China a couple of times on mission trips and work with some missionaries over there who are work, working with church planters. And I've gotten to see firsthand, like hear their stories um, of you know, their, their secret underground house churches that are illegal and that the government comes and arrests them and puts them in prison. I was sitting in one of their meetings one time and one of the leaders, it was about... 42 different house churches that had come together for this training time. And this was just a few years ago. I mean, it's not like, I mean, this is, you know, today. And, uh, and the leader was just saying, hey, if, if the police come to your house church, tell your people, don't acknowledge any of the other house churches. Like, we understand they'll stop this one. But if they don't know about the whole network, they, they can't stop us. <laughs> I mean, that, that's the way they were thinking. Like, here's how easily reproducible this is. We've got 40 different house churches spread out over this region. They may find one of you. They're not going to find all of us. And it was this idea, we'll just keep telling people about Jesus. And then they had, there was a, a group over there that was actually kidnapping members of these house churches and holding them without food and water and trying to get them to renounce their faith in Jesus. 
And so the, the second thing they said was, hey, if one of your members gets kidnapped, tell them that we've learned if they hold out for three days, they'll let them go. Just for three days, no food, no water, no big deal. Don't renounce Jesus for three days, and they let you go. And those were the things they were talking about over there. When the police arrest you, don't acknowledge anybody else so that we can keep telling people about Jesus. When you get kidnapped, hold on for three days, and they'll let you go. And I left there, just, just to say this real quickly, I left there and came back over here, and I thought, because that was kind of like an associational business meeting over there, all the house churches coming together, and I thought, what do we talk about in our associational business meetings, in our church business meetings? Like, what are the, the trite, trivial, insignificant things that we argue about, and this is what they're talking about? But just to say, persecution is a reality from the outside, a threat. This is a threat to the church, a danger for the church, and yet it cannot stop the church. That the promise of Jesus is enough. The power and the boldness that Jesus gives to his people from the Holy Spirit means that they look at this persecution, they know how serious it is, and they say, we're going to talk about Jesus anyway. And if you beat us for talking about Jesus, we will rejoice that you know we're saying the name of Jesus. So that's the first threat. The next one I want us to see, because again, like I said, I know that persecution from the outside is not as common for us right now. The rest of these, I think, are much more common for us. In chapter 6, this is the reason I want us to keep going in these next seven verses. You know, look what's going on. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, so the church is still growing rapidly. And by the way, that was the way it ended in 41 and 42, I think, somewhere up here. Teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Right? Declaring who Jesus is. They're making disciples. The disciples were increasing in number. And then there's this complaint. You've got these Greek widows now in the church, and you've got Hebrew widows. In other words, Jews and non-Jews. So we've got at least a cultural issue and maybe a racial issue taking place here within the church. And the Greeks are being neglected. They're, they're giving food out every day to widows to help care for them. The Greeks are being neglected or feel like they are compared to the Jewish widows. And so one of the dangers here is division, right, inside the church. And, and division in terms of favoritism, racism, Or maybe just plain old disgruntled church members. You know, Luke doesn't give us real specific details. We've got to look and say, okay, these are the possibilities. But there's a problem that the church may be divided along cultural lines, along racial lines, um, that, that the Jews and the non-Jews aren't going to come together and be one in Jesus. But there's going to be this separation that, that isn't overcome, that should have been overcome by the gospel. And so it's a threat to the church. But then there's also another threat right here. There's two of them. Because look how the apostles respond. It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, we're going to pick some other people to take care of this, and they need to be full of the spirit and wisdom so they know how to deal with this potential division within the church. But here's going to be our priority still. Here's the thing that we will not move away from. We will devote ourselves to prayer 
and to the ministry of the Word. And notice right here, when you're praying, this is the Spirit of God, right? You're putting yourself in touch with the power of God. Through, you're asking God. You're making God give us your spirit. For, like we saw it at the end of chapter 4. Give us your spirit so that we will be bold and we will keep speaking about Jesus. And this is the Word of God. And we've said it over and over and over. Spirit of God and Word of God are essential to the church. Essential means you have to have them. You have to have the Spirit of God and you have to have the Word of God. They're essential and they're sufficient. It's all you need. But you, you have the Spirit and you have the Word. You have what God gives to build His church. And the reason I say it here is they're so essential to the church, the Spirit and the Word, you know, prayer and the Word, that they say, hey, even something, because think about this, they're feeding widows, people who don't have any means to provide for themselves, who are hungry, who need resources. This is a good ministry, Right? This is not a bad thing. This is not persecution from the outside. This is a good thing, and the apostles look at it, and they say, that good thing cannot take priority over the most important thing. That good thing cannot take priority over prayer for the Spirit to build His church and the declaration of who Jesus is through His Word. That has to happen for the church. Any other ministry, you can have it or not. But this we have to have. This is essential and this is sufficient. If we have this, we have what we need. And so let's say this is a good thing, but there's a danger. This is our third threat or danger. There's a danger that it'll be a distraction, and a distraction of good things. Not just that we'll get distracted by things that don't matter or worldly things or insignificant things, but that we'll get distracted by good things, by our pet projects, by the ministries that we're most passionate about. And we'll get distracted by that in a way that pulls us away from the ministry of the prayer, ministry of prayer and the word. That we would think, hey, church is about this now, about this thing that I want to do or, or this preference that I have or, or this, this ministry that I'm passionate about. And we forget, no, church is about the Spirit of God coming the way that Jesus promised and empowering us to be his witnesses by declaring his word and making disciples. That is the church. And everything else flows out of that. And there is this danger that we'll get distracted by good things. And notice, when they don't get distracted, you know, they appoint these seven men who take over this ministry. And it's not that they don't do the ministry, by the way. I'm not saying that we don't have ministers. We don't minister people. We don't care for people. They do the ministry, but they keep the priorities in the right order. They don't allow the ministry to become the whole thing. That they know, like, this isn't about human benevolence and human ministries and us doing good. Like, that's not the main thing. This is powered by the Spirit of God, and it's about making Jesus known. And everything else we do is for that. And when they do that, watch how this starts up here. Verse 1, what's going on? In those days when the disciples were increasing in number. So the disciples are increasing, right? They're making disciples. who are making disciples. The church is growing. Now there's this, this, this threat of division and this threat of distraction. They don't get distracted. They, first of all, they deal with the division. They say, hey, this isn't right. We're going to appoint some people to take care of this. We are not going to allow there to be favoritism and racism. We're going to appoint men of, of wisdom, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom, who can deal with this in a way that does represent the gospel and says that everyone's welcome here, everyone's treated equally here, that we love all people, we show grace to all people, that these cultural racial differences do not matter in the body of Christ. Right, so so they, they aren't thrown off by division, and then they aren't distracted because... 
The word of God continued to increase. The apostles do exactly what they said they were going to do. They keep declaring the word. And we started out in verse 1. There was a lot of disciples being made. Look how it ends when they, don't get, when they aren't divided and they don't get distracted. And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The same thing that was happening before the division and the distraction is happening after the division and the distraction. In other words, the division and the distraction didn't derail the church. In other words, Jesus kept his promise. Right? I will build my church. And nothing. Like, hell can throw persecution at it and it won't stop me. Hell can throw division at it and it won't stop me. Hell can throw distraction at it and it won't stop me. Like, do you see Jesus keeping his promise? Because there are people in the church who are filled with the Spirit the way that he promised. And these people who are filled with the Spirit have the wisdom to know it is the Spirit and the Word that build the church and we will not be moved from that. We will not turn to anything else. We don't have another plan. We don't have other resources. There is no plan B. This is it. We will pray. We will pray that God will build his church. And we will declare Jesus and Jesus and Jesus and Jesus and Jesus and Jesus. And Jesus builds his church. And now, I love this this little tag. And also a great many of the priests became obedient. You know these Jewish religious leaders? Now Jesus is going after them too. <laughs> yeah, you, you've been opposing my church so far. You thought you would stop my church. <laughs> I'm going to come get you and make you part of my church. Like this is how much they aren't conquering Jesus. Like this is how much he's keeping his promise. And this is what he promises you. This is what he promises me. When we are gathered here as the church of Jesus Christ, do you know how significant this is? Do you know how worthwhile this is? Do you know how much this matters? Do you know the eternal significance of what it means for Jesus to call us as his people and then say, I want to use you. I want to, use, I want to give you my spirit, the spirit of God himself and my power to make me known, to make disciples, to declare my word. Do you pray like you believe that's what's going on? Do you pray like you believe that's what's at stake? Are you in the word? Are you in the word? Are you bringing other people to the word? Are you sharing the word with other people? Like you believe that this is what's happening and this is how it will happen. Now, there's one more, one more threat. And I saved it for the end because it may be, division and distraction are really, really relevant for us. And I don't mean to minimize them at all. But this other threat up here, may be the most relevant of all in the Bible Belt, like a place where religion's been around for several generations, and most of us have, not all of us, but most of us have been exposed to it you know, before this week and before the past month, and, and we're sort of religious people. And the fourth one, the fourth threat, you know, persecution from the outside, division from the inside, distraction of good things, and the fourth threat, just in the, in the spirit of the day, I'm going to call it this, fake religion. And this is Ananias and Sapphira, right? Here's great grace coming upon people, and it's producing things. It is producing obedience. It's producing generosity. It's producing giving. There are things that you can see happening in the church where their unity, you know, the division's a threat, but they're of one heart and soul. That we see what grace does, that grace overcomes these threats. But 
it's producing external stuff that you can see, but now here's some people who look at that external stuff and they haven't had great grace hit their hearts and they say, well, we can copy that. We can, we can do this stuff. This looks good and people get praised for that. I'm going to do that too. And so they fake on the outside what's not a reality on the inside for them. And the reason we know it's not is because they aren't actually compelled to give everything to Jesus. They aren't being honest about it. That they are just trying to trick people and deceive the church and make them think that they're really generous and make themselves look good, but they want to keep as much as they can for themselves. Their hearts haven't melted because of grace. They aren't, they aren't doing this just because I'm compelled to. I want to. They're not doing it for that reason. They're doing it because, hey, if I do this, people will think I'm doing the right things and they'll look at me and think I'm pretty good and they'll praise me and I'll feel pretty good about myself. And so this fake religion as a threat to the church, here's the other thing that stood out to me, and I want to spend a few minutes here. I mean, youth persecution, that's a huge threat to the church. Like all the political and religious leaders of that time coming against the church to try to squash it, they're threatening your leaders, they're arresting your leaders, they're beating your leaders, they're killing your leaders. I mean, you would think that people may get scared to death and say, I can't handle that. I don't want to be part of it. Like this is a bit, persecution is a big threat, but it doesn't stop the church at all. Division. Division is a huge threat. Like if the result of grace is that they're of one heart and one soul, then division is the undoing of grace in the church, right? This is a big threat. Distraction. That if the whole way the church is built is by the Spirit and the Word, if they get distracted from that, this isn't the church. Like whatever you're building now, if it's not based on the Spirit and the Word, is not the church. This is a huge threat to the church. So we've already had the, we got these three huge threats. But so far... You know, what we've seen is God gives them boldness. When they've been persecuted, God doesn't end the persecution. God doesn't remove them out of the persecution. God doesn't keep them safe from future persecution. He gives them boldness to storm right back into the face of the persecution and say the same thing again. Right? That, that's how he deals with that one. With the division, he gives them wisdom, and here's how we're going to address this. And with the Spirit and the Word, we're going to create unity in the church and overcome it. With the, the distraction of good things, I'm going to give you leaders who remember that the priority is prayer and the Word, and they're not going to get distracted by anything else. No matter how good it is, this will never be most important, because this is where the church is built. So that's how he's dealt with those. But then with fake religion, God kills them. I mean, right? He has religious leaders who are opposing the church, and he doesn't kill them. And he has people who are creating division in the church over racial differences. He doesn't kill them. He has people who are in danger of getting distracted from the priority of the prayer and the word. He doesn't kill them. But he has people who engage in fake religion, and he kills them. And I don't mean to say that there aren't other times throughout the rest of Acts that he'll respond really strongly to other threats to his church. But do you see what a serious threat to the church fake religion is if this is how God responds to it? This is how serious it is when we would show up on the outside and fake our religion without our hearts being changed by Jesus. When we would show up and make it look like what we're doing is a product of grace and really it's just a product of human planning and human wisdom and, and human schemes. 
when the reality would not penetrate to our hearts, that grace would not reach our hearts and really teach us to love Jesus, but we would just go through the motions and go through the behaviors and do it all on the outside and pat each other on the back and tell each other what a good job we're doing because you're here every week and you do this and you serve in these ministries and all this looks good and we all make ourselves look good and feel good and none of us are desperate for Jesus to change our hearts because we're content with faking it on the outside. Do you know what a threat that is and how seriously God takes it if he kills that and none of the other threats? Now, I've told you that the book of Acts, we've got this mixture of prescriptive and descriptive. Like, is it prescribing what God always does, what we need to do, or is it just describing what happened? And clearly, God doesn't always kill everybody who shows up and fakes their religion. I know that because we're all still breathing right now, right? Like, this is you and me. It, ha- it has been you and me in the past. It's you and me sometimes now. Like God doesn't always deal with it this way. But right at the beginning, at the birth of his church, he's making a clear and really loud statement. And he's like, fake religion is intolerable in my church. It is a poison that will undermine everything that I'm doing in people's hearts. And I have promised that I will build my church. And I won't let this overcome it. I will not let this overcome. It is the promise of Jesus that brings about the death of Ananias and Sapphira because he's sending us a message and saying, I don't want your fake religion. I don't want your fake good deeds. I want the real thing. This is Jesus saying, I want the real thing that only I can produce by my spirit living in you and my great grace melting your heart and changing you and bringing you to life. And so I was thinking about this last one with it being so serious, and I'll try to make two columns here. And I know that means I'll write even sloppier when I squeeze it all in, but fake religion and real Christianity. And just think about what we see with Ananias and Sapphira. And let God, you know, when we talk each week about what's God saying to our hearts, examine your heart. Ask yourself, like, what's the marker right now of your religious life? You know, with with fake religion, you pretend you're better than you are, right? You show up and you do things on the outside that make yourself look good, and they're not really true, and, and, and in a sense, you're deceiving everybody around you. You're lying to everybody around you, and you're saying, oh yeah, look what I give, look what I give, look how much of me Jesus has, and you know it's not true. You know all the things you're holding back, but you don't admit that. You don't confess that. You draw attention to, here's what I'm doing, and I'm going to pretend like this is how good I am. Real Christianity, you confess how bad you are, and you trust how good Jesus is. And so you can show up, and you can pretend you are better than you are. And you will know nothing of the great grace of Jesus. Or you can show up and you can admit how bad your heart is and how much you need Jesus and you can trust him to be good enough for you and great grace will be upon you. Fake religion is all about external performance. The things that we can see with our eyes, the things that we can show other people, the way that we can perform and and make them believe that we're pretty good. Real Christianity, great grace 
changes you from the inside out. It doesn't start on the outside. It starts in the inside. And this is why you give. And it's not just a performance. You're really being changed. Fake religion corrupts the good things you do. It's a good thing to sell a piece of land and give half of the profit to the church. That's not actually a bad thing, right? If any of you this week wants to sell a million-dollar piece of land and give us $500,000, we'll take it, right? But be honest that you sold it for a million dollars, okay? Otherwise, we may have to pay for your funeral next weekend. Not really. I don't think this is prescriptive. But seriously, like it's a good thing. Like they, they could have given 25%, and it would have been a good thing. They could have given 10%, and it would have been a good thing. This good thing that they could have done is corrupted by their fake religion and becomes a terrible thing where they're lying to the Holy Spirit and lying to God and lying to His church and building themselves up in a way that gives glory and praise for themselves and is the very antithesis of everything the church is supposed to be in relationship with God and ends up looking just like what Satan does, right? That I want glory for myself. Like This good thing becomes demonic because their fake religion corrupts it. And Peter tells them, you didn't have to give all of it. He actually even tells him, you have to give any of it. The land was yours before you sold it. Nobody made you sell it. We didn't tell you to sell it. You didn't have to do that. And once you sold it, all the money was your own. You could have done whatever you wanted with it. Nobody made you give any. The fact that you were going to give some, that's a good thing. But your fake religion made you pretend. And in your pretending, you were lying about who you really are, and you were lying about what you were really doing, and your fake religion corrupted the good thing that you were doing. So fake religion corrupts the good things you do. Real Christianity <laughs> redeems the worst things you do. Remember who the church is made up of at this point? The apostles who abandoned Jesus when he was arrested and the crowd who crucified Jesus when he died. Twice in the first four chapters, Peter has stood up to a crowd and he said, you killed the Lord of glory. You killed the author of life. You killed the Son of God. You killed the Messiah. You. Now repent and believe. And for all those who do, they come to faith in Jesus. And this is who God builds. The The very worst thing they did, crucifying Jesus, becomes their salvation when God redeems it for them. True Christianity redeems the worst things you do and turns it into grace for you and glory for God. And so you can either have fake religion that corrupts the best things you do or you can have true Christianity that redeems the worst things you do. The other thing about fake religion, it looks at others to compare And compete. Like here's Ananias and Sapphira, and you see what's going on with them. Oh, Barnabas, he gave all that to the church, and and everybody thought that was a great thing, and everybody praised him. So they're looking at Barnabas, and now they're comparing. Barnabas did that. I I better do something like that. And this is the way Barnabas did it. So now I've got to compete with that. I've got to make what I do look like what he did. 
fake religion, looks at others, compares itself to others, and in, in the end competes with Because I don't feel good about me in fake religion. As long as you're still better than me, I don't feel good about me. Because right? I'm the standard in this. It's not based on grace to you or grace to me. It's based on our external performance. And so if your external performance is better than mine, I still feel bad about me. So i got to look at you. i got to see how good you are. i got to compare myself to you, and i got to compete with that. True Christianity looks to Jesus to trust. And receive. I see who Jesus is and I see what he's worth and I see what he's done and I see his love and his grace for me and I trust him. I trust him to make me what I need to be, to give to me what I need. And it doesn't matter how I measure up to anybody else in the world because I'm not the standard in true Christianity. Jesus is the standard and he measures up. And also, when I know this is true, when I look at them, any good thing I see in them, I know that's him. That's his grace to them. And so I can celebrate that. I can celebrate the work of Jesus and the life of others because it's not a threat to me because that same grace for them is the same grace for me. And I know that we're one heart and one soul and we're together. And so when I look to Jesus to trust, I can receive grace and I can receive value, and I can receive the freedom to celebrate the grace of God in other people's lives. And it is a completely different environment when you look to Jesus and receive his grace versus when you're looking to others to compare and compete and prop yourself up and make yourself look better. And then if we're just going to summarize the whole thing in fake religion, You're the center of the universe. I mean, you think about Ananias and Sapphira. When they give, it's for them. It's all about them. How's it going to make them look? Like they have, to, they have to pretend that their giving's even better than it really is because they want people to think that they are really even better than they really are. Right? So you're the center of the universe, and what I mean is everything you do, ultimately, at its core, if you ever strip back all the external performance and all the lying and all the pretending and all the stuff that you fluff up and put out here so that nobody can actually see the truth about your heart, if you strip all that back and you get to the core of your heart, your fake religion is for you and it's about you. But in true Christianity, Jesus is the center of the universe. And the result, I switch these up a little bit on you then, everything you do is about Jesus. Like when Barnabas gives, it's because of Jesus. It's about Jesus, right? But it also frees you that the things you do can be for others. Everything you do is about Jesus. But Barnabas gives to meet the needs of others in the church. He gives out of love and generosity for them, for their sake. Because when everything's about Jesus and not about you anymore, it frees you from being selfish, it frees you from being self-centered. You know you're not the center of the universe, and so all this stuff doesn't have to be about you, and so now you can be turned out in love toward others because it's about Jesus, and that's what he's like. That's what he's done. That's who he is. And so I thought one application here for us as we wrap up. Don't come to this place 
or any other, because it's not just when we gather here, but don't come to this place and pretend. Don't come to this place and pretend. And especially do not pretend. That you're giving all to Jesus. And when I stand up here every week and I tell you how much Jesus is worth and how good Jesus is and that Jesus deserves it all, I don't ever want to play the game that where you think that just because I say that that I'm somehow doing that and that my heart's better than it really is. And so I want you to know I do not give all of my trust to Jesus. I do not give all of my obedience to Jesus. I do not give all of my surrender to Jesus. I do not give all of my heart to Jesus. I still struggle with the pieces of me that don't trust him the way that I should, with the the expressions of sin and selfishness and self-centeredness that live inside of me. I am so impatient, and I am so easily frustrated, and I am easily angered, and I'm easily discouraged, and there's all sorts of things in my life that does not look like the Spirit of God. And I, want, I don't want to stand up here and pretend with you, and I don't want you to pretend with each other, and I don't want you to pretend with me, because we need Jesus. And it is okay to come to this place and need Jesus. It is not okay to come to this place and pretend that you're so good that you don't need Jesus. You can still come here if that's what you're pretending, but we're going to tell you every week that you're wrong, and that's a lie, and that you need Jesus. It is okay for you to come here and not be good enough because that's who Jesus is. He is good enough. And he promises to keep working in you, to keep giving grace to you, to keep building his church. Nothing can stop him from fulfilling that promise. Do you see that today? Persecution from the outside, division from the inside, the distraction of good things, fake religion on the inside, none of it stopped him. We end in chapter 6, verse 7, and the disciples are multiplying more rapidly than, I don't what is it now, 50,000? Like if it's growing faster than ever, it was 20,000, is it 50,000 now? I don't know. But listen, if none of that could stop Jesus from building his church, I promise you, you not being perfect, you not being good enough, the sin that you're struggling with isn't going to stop him. And so you don't have to hide it. You can admit it. And you can bring it out and you can find great grace for it. Because here's the thing. There is one person who didn't fake any of it. There's one person who gave everything that he said he was giving. And that's Jesus. When you haven't given your all to him, Jesus gave his all for you. When you have pretended that you didn't need him, Jesus has known how much you really need him and he has come to you. When you held back stuff from him, he held back nothing from you. He really poured it all out. All of his life, all of his righteousness given to you, all of his power and position and glory and heaven, all of it laid down, surrendered. Right? His blood poured out all of it unto death. Jesus really gave it all. Jesus has really done it all. 
Jesus really offers it all to you. And that's why we've got hope today. That's why his church is being built. That's why nothing in the past 2,000 years has even come close to stopping his church. And nothing's going to stop it now. Because he promised. And he's doing it. And he's going to keep doing it. And he offers great grace to you. All the grace you need. Even when you don't give him all. He keeps giving you all of himself. And so I pray that you see him today. I pray that you trust him today. I pray that you'll be honest about how much you need him. And I pray that you will rejoice, that you will have great hope and courage and strength and joy and encouragement in the fact that he does give you everything you need, that his grace towards you is great. And he will meet all your needs and he will keep all of his promises. Will you pray with me right now? Father, thank you for Jesus. Please open our eyes to see Jesus right now and to love him and to worship him and to trust him. And I pray that our hearts are melted by his grace and by who he is. And Father, I just ask you, keep building your church by the power of your spirit. Make us into your people. Do the work that only you can do. Protect us from all the threats outside of us and most of all from the threats inside of us. Protect us by your grace and by your spirit and drive us back to dependence on you in prayer and in your word. And I pray that we will see you build your church in great and mighty ways for our good and most of all for your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.